episode 382 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our children, really maybe not even our pets. Joining me for the News Roundup, first-time participant in the podcast, although he swears he's a longtime listener, uh, Scott Shapiro, professor of law and professor of philosophy at Yale Law School and the founding director of the Yale Cybersecurity Lab, which is a truly widespread set of interests. So Scott, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I swear I am a longtime listener and I do think you are a great provocateur. Oh, thank you. Uh, and the easily provoked Nate Jones, a co-founder of Culper Partners uh, <laughs> and formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Nate, good to have you back. Always good to be here. Thanks, Stuart. Okay, and Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, the hardest working man in national security today, Jamil Jaffer. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, Stuart. Yeah, exactly. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Why don't we start, Scott, with the Biden administration's decision to impose sanctions on four firms, the most notorious of which is NSO, for essentially human rights violations by enabling intrusions into the phones and computers of a bunch of targets that at least the U.S. government considers uh, to be inappropriate. Uh, a lot of NGOs, a lot of human rights workers, uh, a lot of dissidents. NSO is widely suspected of having hacked the phone of Jamal Khashoggi, who's the guy, of course, who was uh, killed and dismembered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. What framework is the Biden administration using for these sanctions? Well, first of all, I think this is a, a pretty big deal for a number of reasons, m mostly because NSO is an Israeli company and the United States and Israel are very strong allies when it comes to security matters. The Biden administration, as you said, has cracked down on NSO and three offensive cybersecurity firms. The, the, the standard is that NSO has been acting contrary to the foreign policy and national security interests of the United States. The Commerce Department, which acting through the Bureau of Science and Industry, put NSO and the other three firms on the so-called entity list. Being on the entity list imposes specific license requirements for the export of certain types of technologies. Basically, American companies that want to sell anything to anyone on the entities list has to get a special license, except that in this case, the licenses are to be presumptively denied, though there are possibilities of uh, exceptional circumstances. So it, it, it puts this Israeli firm in, in, in the kind of blacklist, though not, it's not a catastrophic thing for NSO, but it is pretty bad. It is, it's not catastrophic probably because of the nature of their business. This is the same list that Huawei and ZTE were put on. And, it, you know, it's interesting, the original purpose of having an entity list that commerce administers as separate from the sanctions that uh, Treasury administers is you didn't want to sell 
goods to a known diverter. So if somebody had a, a Persian Gulf business that consisted of buying sophisticated technology that couldn't be sold to Iran and then turning around and shipping it to Iran, you wanted to put them on the same list that Iran was on and say, don't sell goods that can't go to Iran there to this entity. But with the Huawei sanctions, it became much more about saying, we really just don't like you. We think you're acting contrary to U.S. interests, and we're going to try to hurt your business. Because, of course, the Commerce Department list is enormous. Uh, toilet paper is on there somewhere. I, uh, this is not just sophisticated technology. The Good news, I think, for NSO is there's not a lot of American goods they absolutely have to have to to be in this the business that they're in. They ought to be able to buy computers uh, without uh, worrying about the the U.S. They might have trouble if they needed access to big cloud instances because the big cloud instances are either U.S. or in a few cases Chinese, and they might not be thrilled with the Chinese uh, service. The, the one thing I wanted to at least flag was how this interoperates with the other big news out of the Commerce Department last year, uh, last week when they announced that they were finally implementing or planning to implement the, the intrusion software controls where they set everything up so basically you probably didn't have to worry about uh, getting a license if you were in truly in the business of uh, good guy pen testing. But now if you're in the business of good guy pen testing, NSO is a customer who's off limits and you can't even share malware with them. You probably can't even send them malware and saying, by the way, is this yours? Because the sending the malware is an export that's a licensable event. So, so I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you say. I, and you point out a really interesting aspect of being on the entity list. It is not prohibited for an American company to, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, to buy or to license, let's say, spyware from NSO. So it, it's saying that American companies can't export to NSO, not that they can't import from NSO. And so this is, this is actually very important. That's why I said it's not catastrophic to NSO, but it is really bad for the reason that the, the Wall Street Journal had an article, was it last week or the week before, about the kind of land in cybersecurity firms. I was shocked to see that CrowdStrike now has a market cap of like something like $63 billion, and, and uh, the capitalizations keep on going up and up. And NSO was hoping to go pub roughly at a valuation of $2 billion. And, you know, I, I would think that this would be a big red flag for investors and kind of messes up their ability of the uh, founders to kind of exit. But by the way, NSO stands for the founders, although their first names, Nir, ah. Shalev, and Omri, which makes it sound much friendlier than it is. Like, it's yeah, Joe so Bob RS and Billy's cyber exploit firm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> RSA is interesting. Was was similarly everybody's initials. Uh, so uh, yeah. Jamil, right, this but, is but last name. Right. Yeah, exactly. I I I'm going to ask Jamil what this tells us about the geopolitics 
of the Biden administration, because I cannot imagine this would have happened under Trump. And so this, there's a willingness here to take on an Israeli company and do some real damage. Yeah, look, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's worth noting that not only um, have they gone after NSO, they went after the Singaporean company uh, that was involved in allegedly involved in cyber hacking, and then a couple of a couple of uh, other entities also. And so, you know, this is not. I think what's interesting here is the is the decision to go after what are companies that are in what are otherwise allied countries, right? NSO obviously has significant issues. We've even seen the Israeli government sort of walking away, you know, Scott was referencing away from sort of NSO, at least gingerly. But it does raise questions, right? Is this the right way to deal with an otherwise, you know, friendly nations companies? And so, you know, it, it is a... It is a tough move, but I think you know this is part of the larger Biden administration human rights uh, story that they're trying to tell. Whether in fact it's accurate at a time when you know we still have the Chinese government interning over a million Uyghurs in in the Xinjiang province, and we're not particularly getting tough on that problem, right? And we continue to play footsie with all sorts of other folks that have human rights issues around the globe, as as we have historically and as we need to. You know, is this is this the right sort of bastion of the human rights agenda that the uh, that the administration engaged in, never mind the the disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal and all the human rights issues that that's going to create in that country and all the people we've left behind, not just American Afghan allies, but American citizens and green card holders that are still stuck in that country and subjected to the deprivations of the Taliban. So, But that, I think, is part of what's going on here. And, and I think you're right. We, we might not have seen this under the Trump administration, but the Biden administration is saying, look, we're, we're a new sheriff's in town. We're going to get tougher on, on, on some of these bad actors or what we perceive as bad actors even if they're in friendly countries. So Dave Itell, who was on last week, uh, writes in to say, be sure to take a look at an Atlantic Council report that just came out on surveillance technology at the fair. It's called basically it looked at which of these intrusion software companies goes to which arms fairs and conferences and draws conclusions about where they sell their goods by from things like whether they go to arms markets in uh, China and Russia and uh, kind of puts a black mark by their name if they do. He's, he points out that the Singaporean company didn't get listed in this list of hundreds of uh, companies. And he says, you know, I just don't know how they chose, it's Kosenk, I think is the way you pronounce it, or CSI. I don't know how they chose those guys for sanctions. And that is going to raise a question. How are we going to decide, how's the U.S. going to decide which of these companies deserves to be sanctioned and how and what kind of uh, fact-finding is going to be necessary? You know, the Treasury is really good at this. They do a lot of fact-finding and most of their fact-finding stands up. I'm less confident that uh, the Commerce Department can uh, stand up to judicial review. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, Stuart, one of the this has always been a challenge, right, in the context of uh, making these decisions, these sanctioning decisions, right? You know, there are on any given day, if you're going after the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, there are any ma any number of state oriented companies, state associated companies, um, companies that provide support or to the nation state in 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 the the problematic efforts that you want to get them on, whether it's terrorism, terrorism financing or or weapons of mass destruction or in this case cybersecurity or surveillance. And so the question is the question has always been how you pick and choose. And your point's exactly the right one, which is Treasury's gotten used to this. They they have a, they have a whole process and the like. And and is commerce as good at the situation or not? You've got to believe that commerce isn't doing this on their own, right? That the decisions are being informed significantly by intelligence information collected by NSA, 
Cyber Command, DOD, probably by Treasury and the like in, in the case of some of these some of these cyber activities. And so my guess is that this is an interagency decision. It's not just left with the Commerce Department alone. The entity list historically has been an inter- has been teed up for the interagency yeah. process. And so my guess is these are being vetted pretty aggressively. And, and look, particularly when we're talking about you know friendly countries, Singapore and Israel, I, I would be very surprised if this didn't go to the deputies, if not the principals committee at the National Security Council, for at least a discussion about, is this the place we want to go? So you make a fair point, but I wonder whether, at least in these cases, there has been a little bit deeper vetting than you might otherwise have necessarily for entity list listings. So let, let me switch gears from this sort of surprising and fairly fast-moving action to something that is the, the opposite of surprising <laughs> and the opposite of fast-moving, Nate. Uh, the Pentagon I kind of predictably has totally revamped and postponed the cybersecurity maturity model the, that or the CMMC regulatory program. I you know I I've always said DOD is the last and maybe the first uh, bastion of a very regulatory approach to cybersecurity. And if this is how it's going to work out, I wonder if the people who said you can't regulate cybersecurity are going to turn out to be right. Yeah, I, I think you might be right about that. I mean, you know, Congress has always been a place where we have expected these kinds of efforts to, to fail for a variety of reasons. And so I think, you know, people put a lot of stock into the the executive branch using its procurement powers to, to force these kinds of things down people's throats. And and I think people who who wanted to see more aggressive regulation of, of the cybersecurity standards across the private sector had had a great deal of hope here and we're really cheering this on but you know it sounds like DOD got quite a bit of pushback not just from industry but also from some some members of Congress who wanted to among other things lessen the burden on small and medium-sized businesses you know I, I don't think it, it, I think there's a few significant changes that it sounds like they're making here one is you know they're re-tiering the CMMC to allow a larger number of groups to take advantage of these self-assessment and self-certifications as opposed to using third parties to to deem them adequately secure or at least in compliance with the, the requirements of the CMMC. Um, and, you know, there I think, you know, if they're smart, those companies aren't going to take that self-certification lightly. And I think, you know, that to me, is that kind of change is a little bit less of a big deal because I think most people are going to take it pretty seriously. And if they don't, there's a way to hit back at them. Um, and well, actually, I, I think if you're a, if, if you feel that if you're a cybersecurity professional at one of these firms that's doing a self-assessment and you think that they are not doing a good job, not actually honestly conducting that assessment, Justice Department has practically said, come bring us a False Claims Act yeah. uh, uh, case and we'll back you up uh, and give you some money if we recover any. So yeah. I, it is risky to self-assess in bad faith. Yeah. And and the other two big changes that they made, one is pulling back on some of the substantive requirements, what they call these unique CMMC standards. It's a little unclear to me what that means. The other one is allowing for these plan of action milestone reports, which basically means companies don't have to be in compliance um, necessarily. They just have to kind of have a plan to, to get there at some point. And with those two, to me, the devil's really in the details. You know, the question of, 
you know, how much time are they going to give people to come into compliance? How aggressively are they going to crack the whip on these people to make sure that they're doing what needs to be done in a timely manner? You know, so I think, you know, there are ways you could imagine this getting to it, still getting to a pretty good place. But of course, you know, the rulemaking process has to complete itself yet. So as you said, I know. Uh, that's pretty far <laughs> off on the horizon. So, so, it's, so they it's started a, this in 2019 and uh, it now is quite clear that it won't be done in 2021 and probably won't be done in 2022. There's a real question whether the Biden Justice Department will still be around to pursue any False Claims Act (laughs) cases. (laughs) All right. So here's one where it looks as though the good guys won one, uh, but I'm a little uncertain because, you know, when a ransomware gang says it's shutting down I think it's fair to say, yeah, we'll see. And Jamil, are you able to give us a little bit of background on the Black Matter ransomware shutdown? Absolutely, Stuart. So, you know, one of the one of the challenges in this space is that Black Matter is a ransomware group that we think may have had some association with prior ransomware groups, right? There's a sense that they may have been Darkseid, the group that... Yep. Uh, that was involved with the uh, Colonial Pipeline hack, sort of infamously, and and so and they're part of a larger, or at least believe you, associated with a lar- part of a larger organization known as Fin Seven. And so the question becomes: Are they really, you know, just this old group rebranded? Are they going to rebrand in the future? Right. So one of the one of the questions is: Okay, so now they're shut down. The, the, and by the way, the way the way the shutdown went was very interesting. They claimed that uh, some of their fellow uh, workers in, in this space, some of their colleagues in the Black Matter group, which by the way is a ransomware as a service group, so it sort of offers its capability out there. Its affiliates then sort of carry it out into effect, and, and then they get some of the proceeds. They had said that some of their compatriots had had been had become unavailable, and they were under some sort of law enforcement pressure, and as a result, they were shutting down. So the question becomes, you know, look, are they just going underground and going to re- come out and rebrand themselves as something different? Are they going to uh, shut down their ransomware as a service operation and operate as a classic ransomware group doing the work themselves? Um, you know, where was this law enforcement pressure coming from? Was it uh, the Russians? Was it someone else? I, I'm skeptical, by the way, that, that the Russians were, were the ones putting the pressure on because we haven't seen them do a whole lot, even though there's been a lot of talk about, about the pressure that we're putting on the Russians to do something about this problem. No evidence to suggest they've actually acted on it. And uh, and so so an open question about whether, in fact, Black Matter will, will go away or, or will simply re- be reborn as another organization. We've seen similar activities, by the way, with Our Evil, which is another uh, ransomware group that that for a while had, was gone and then, and then reemerged and then had some pressure put on it by NSA and Cyber Command. And so an ongoing, I think, I think to be determined whether, in fact, this will count as a win for for whoever was involved in the law enforcement agencies that were involved ostensibly with with the, these guys deciding to shut themselves down. Yeah, it's better than nothing, but we, we just don't know how much better. All right. Speaking of which nothing is kind of what China's getting from Yahoo now or what Yahoo's getting from China. Nate, Yahoo, what's left of Yahoo has pulled what's left of its China operation out of China. I, I was surprised that they were still there. Is there anybody left? There is. Uh, GitHub is one of the main ones that people have been talking about. But yeah, you're right. Yahoo has joined a, a long and growing list of companies that have exited the market there, and you know they're pointing to, among other things, China's version of the GDPR and the data localization requirements and things of that nature, and saying that you know what I think others have said before them again that the the environment, both the business environment and the legal environment, is according to Yahoo increasingly challenging, and and forced them to to exit stage left. I I think what 
what we're seeing, if you take a step back, is that, you know, both sides, you know, on the one hand, the Chinese government, and on the other hand, these private sector companies are, you know, just continually assessing the costs and benefits of remaining. You know, China tends to you know, take their foot off the gas a little bit if they need somebody to stay and, and seems a little bit more willing to accommodate some of their concerns when when they when they desperately need some some, you know, product or service or, or entity that they can't replace. But, you know, when you look at GitHub, they also benefit quite a bit from the Chinese market. I, th- I think the one story said that nearly 10 percent of their contributors are based in China. And so, you know, I think at this point, GitHub clearly still feels like it's getting enough value out of China to weather any storm that's going to come from these kinds of of requirements. There are some business models, too, that receive a little bit less pressure in this context. But, you know, but at the same time, China's clearly gunning for GitHub. They've stood up. They created their own own version of GitHub, (laughs) right? And, and they're populating it with GitHub content and trying to build out their own so that someday, you know, when they when theirs is adequate and, and able to replace GitHub, I think you'll see, you know, GitHub, you know, shoved toward the door a little bit more aggressively. And so, you know, it's probably just a matter of time before before others are, are forced to continue to follow Yahoo and, and the long list of people who went before them. Yep. Although I, I think, you know, if 10% of the contributors are Chinese, that means that 90% of the value of all the open source projects is still coming from outside China. And China is a net beneficiary of having GitHub around, I think. Well, well, that assumes that the, there's a, an equal distribution between volume and, and value. Uh, <laughs> Fair so, enough. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, it, GitHub's probably in a better position to assess that than I am. But, but I think, you know, some would argue that there may be outsized value from some of the this 10% of contributors. That's probably right. All right. So let's go back to the U.S. courts. Uh, Scott, the ACLU lost three in a row uh, trying to establish that there was a First Amendment right to see judicial opinions that were built on classified data, the FISA court opinions. And they lost in the FISA court, they lost in the FISA court review, and then they filed for cert, and they got two votes for a cert grant. Uh, Can you explain what was going on? Yeah, so first of all, before I started to say that there was a group of of public, public interest law firms that challenged the FISC, and one of them was the Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic, of which I'm a part of, though I had I had no involvement in the case, and I'm not speaking for them at all. So, this is it's actually it's a fascinating case and series of issues. It's something that, like, if you're a legal philosopher, you really like this case. So, what what happens? So, so the case begins all the way back in 2013, after the Snowden revelations, when it comes out that the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is you know, a, a, a essentially a secret court that approves the collection of foreign intelligence surveillance, issued legal opinions about the bulk collection of telephone me- metadata and the ACLU and Mafia and various other groups you know, wanted to see the opinion and the FISC said, no, this is secret, and then the lawyers came back and said, well, wait a second, you know, we have a First Amendment right to see it. Now, meanwhile, in 2014, the USA Freedom Act is enacted, which directs the DNI and the Attorney General to basically declassify significant legal opinions. 
And so the ACLU says, well, that's great, but that only applies to, two th uh, to 2014 on. We, we want to know about all the legal, secret legal opinions that were, that were written for the last 13 years from 2000, uh, 2001, from 9-11, all the way up to 2014. Now, it's, it's, so both the FISC, the, the regular court, and the FISC Court of Review, which is like the appellate court to the FISC, they both say, look, you know, we're, 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 we're like these puny courts. We don't have the power even to entertain the question about our own jurisdiction. The FISC says we authorize FISA warrants and certified programs, but we don't answer legal questions about our own jurisdiction. The Court of Review says, look, we're only allowed to review, review denials of warrants. Like, we, we, we're not allowed to, to address these um, issues about jurisdiction. So the ACLU goes up to the court and asks for a writ of certiorari, and the government amazingly argues that even the court, even the Supreme Court of the United States does not have jurisdiction to, to question whether secret legal opinions should be kept secret or released. And the government argues that like, it, the, 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 the appeal does not come from, the court of, from a, one of the regular court of appeals. And also, if you look at the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the Congress specifically says that the only party that's innate, that's empowered to ask the court for certiorari is the government. And so the government says, Supreme Court, you can't even handle this. You can't even deal with this question, which is really, I mean, it's a good argument. And it's probably, I, I uh, thought it was, you know, from a statutory. I, 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 I might, because yeah, right. certiorari is a statutory grant, right? They, they said, here's the grant. You can do it in this circumstance. I think you could probably, if you were not a U.S., you weren't the U.S. government, you could still seek certiorari if you were somebody who received one of these orders and was challenging it and you'd lost so that you you got to the fiscal court of review and the court of review said no you need to comply you could probably ask right. for certiorari so it wasn't completely right. one-sided if you're an aggrieved party that's right exactly you had to be somebody and i i, I read this the better argument the better practical argument that the, the u.s had was oh give me a break if you would just file a damn FOIA petition, you'd have access. You could make all these arguments. And in fact, we've released a lot of this stuff under FOIA. But it, it, what's yeah, interesting so, to so, me uh, is we, Justice Gorsuch, with what looked to me uh, like an attaboy join from uh, Sotomayor, said, I, he sounded a lot like you, Scott. Uh, I, I'm kind of surprised that you're saying this is immune from review. We're the Supreme Court, for God's sake, and this is an important issue. Well, that, that's because Justice Gorsuch has a PhD in legal philosophy. And, <laughs> and, and so let me, let me tell you why this is... <laughs> Note to self, no more philosophers on the court. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> or no, or no, no more philosophers on the show. So the, what, 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 I, what I would say is, what I would say is, you know, so if you, like, let's not look at it from, like, the very technical question about what 50 USC 1803B right. says. But let's, like, think about it, like, what is the highest virtue of a legal system? Well, what do we, like the rule of law. And what do we think is like the worst violation that there is? The paradigm example of violation of rule of law would be a secret court, star chamber-like thing. This is like 
a big, I, I see Jamal just shaking his head. The idea, the idea that the government is allowed to act in our name and we are not allowed to know what its justifications for seems to me like the paradigmatic violation of the rule of law. The ACLU is not claiming that they have a right to classified information. That, that, is, a, that is somewhat of a red herring. That, and Justice Gorsuch is like, let, let's not forget that there's this, I know it's an obscure case where there's no statutory or constitutional ground for court jurisdiction, but in this obscure case called Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court nonetheless found a right of a judicial review because it is emphatically the province of the court to say what the law, say what the law is. So I think, you know, from a, I probably would have voted in dissent, but I don't think it matters very much in general, but I do think it is disturbing nonetheless. So Jamil, I know you 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 want to disagree with Scott, but I want to put you on the spot. This is a Gorsuch opinion that Sotomayor was just along for the ride, I think. And that raises the question, where is Gorsuch on some of these national security and civil liberties issues? Is he going to turn out to be a sort of a surprise who grows in office? Or is this some deep-seated libertarian streak in him? Look, I mean, I, hard, you know, hard for me to say where sort of Gorsuch is. I did, I did clerk for him twice at the Tenth Circuit and at the court, at the Supreme Court for for a few months each uh, time. I mean, we teach together in the summer, but uh, I will say this: um, we don't need to look at, you know, at any sort of any sort of growth in office. I think you just look at, at his history of ten years of of opinions on the Court of Appeals, and you'll see there a person who's very concerned about government encroachment on individual liberty, whether it's in the context of prisoners or or the ability of Native Americans to 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 have access to religious facilities in a prison or or administrative agencies setting a setting a legal standard and, and then and then courts deferring to that legal standard. I mean, his opinions for a decade, are rife with examples where he has excoriated his colleagues and and at times disagreed with the Supreme Court gently prior to joining the court on issues that go to individual liberty. And so so I think we can look at that record and, and I don't think there's any surprise when we see him ask tough questions on these issues. At the same time, you know, I think uh, to Scott's point, I don't think this is about Neil Gorsuch being a legal philosopher, right? Or I don't think you need legal philosophy to to get at this issue. I think there's a question of, does the Supreme Court and its lower courts constituted under Article 3 have the power to hear certain matters that are before them, right? Or certain matters that are, are certain matters appropriately before them uh, in their supervisory authority or in their role as Article 3 courts. What I think this raises, though, is a, is a very interesting and different question is, is the FISC and the FISC are, are they in fact Article Three courts in the traditional sense, right? They are creatures of statute, as are all courts below the Supreme Court is the only the only court that was created in the in the in the Constitution is the Supreme Court. I'll note, by the way, as, as to Scott's point about judicial review, not in the Constitution. I think Marbury versus Madison, while nobody debates it today, uh, certainly at the time was viewed as a as a as a significant power grab by the court. And I think that I think that I think it's fair to say that John Marshall, but for who he was and, and the position the court found itself in and the way in which it did it, might have been viewed differently in the modern era. Um, I think the the question here, though, is: Are these courts that are that are that have jurisdiction beyond what statutes provide them? Right. And there are supervisory statutes that provide provide broader writs that you might utilize. And even if even if they had or 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 could have such jurisdiction, do they have to be granted by Congress? 
right? And does that have to be there? And if not, are there other routes? And to your point, Stuart, I think there are plenty of other routes to get at this information, right? There's no reason to think that, that this is just some secret court run amok and that we don't know what they're doing. Since 2013, the, the, the court has declassified uh, a significant chunk of their of their significant opinions. It, I bet if, if, and prior to that, under FOIA, other things have been released, major decisions. The only two decisions of the FISA court of review prior to the, prior to recent memory were in fact released, uh, both in, 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 in resealed case and then later in, in redirected the case that I, that I uh, wrote the briefs in along with some of our other colleagues at the Justice Department. In both those cases, the court review re- released the entirety of their opinions, although with some redactions. And so this idea somehow that, that, that nobody knows what's going on at the FISA court, at the FISC, at the FISC or the FISCAR, and that, and that it's a secret court releasing secret opinions with secret law, it's simply not an accurate characterization of the current of the current court today, and 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 the idea that you couldn't get access to it another way is simply not accurate. And so I don't want to leave the listeners with some idea that that there's this there's a secret court run amok in the in the in the in our judicial system that's simply not accurate at this point. Okay, Scott, I'll give Scott the best thirty well, second I, rebuttal he he's got. So the Star Chamber was considered to be a great reforming institution in the 16th century, and then it went off the rails because when you don't have structures that hold power in place, you get bad things. I am not saying that it, that the FISC is a star chamber. I am saying that it is an aberration to have, to, to live in a, in, a, in, a, in a system that prizes the rule of law and then say, oh, actually, our courts have made these rulings, and we're not going to tell you our reasoning. But I'm not saying that that we are we we live in an anarchic system. Okay, so let's let's see if we can get through the rest of the topics because we got a lot of them. Nate, from five eyes to nine eyes, what's with that? I'll be quick on this one. So Representative Gallego, who who's the one who inserted the language in the defense bill this year, explains the, the logic behind this, mostly in terms of the shared geopolitical interests of the countries he's seeking to add, namely Japan, Korea, South Korea, India, and Germany. And, you know, I, I I guess I, I tend to think of this intelligence sharing relationship as being more than just about aligned interests, right? There's there's a lot of thinking that goes into protecting the, the sources and methods, for example, underlying the information we gather and the level of confidence we have in in our allies that we share it with to protect that information. And so, you know, I think on the bright side, all Representative Gallego's asking for is an assessment from the DNI here as to whether or not the Five Eyes relationship needs to be, quote unquote, modernized or updated and and whether or not it makes sense to add these countries. I, I suspect that what the DNI will come back with as the consensus view from the IC is that, you know, while there may be some room for modernization, adding these countries to the mix probably isn't a good idea. And I would expect most of the logic behind that not to necessarily be shared in a in a public report to Congress, but communicated behind the scenes as to why it doesn't make sense to to give these countries the same privileged access to to what is I should remind people still a subset of the information we possess. Just being in the Five Eyes doesn't mean you get access to everything, right? Um, but, but it really, a, there is only three eyes left to my mind. Uh, the UK and Australia are full-fledged in, intelligence partners. Yeah. New Zealand is a little wagon uh, uh, being pulled along <laughs> behind and not and often left behind. And Canada is just not 
pulling its weight. I, I, I hate to say that, but the, they, they've given up on playing an intelligence role in the world. Uh, and so, and the people that are left are really sharing a lot. Uh, and you have to have yeah. faith and trust in your partner before you do that. And the idea that you could just say, uh, oh, we need more diversity and inclusion on this uh, group. Let's, let's go find some other people from other parts of the world and stick them in. That's just never going to go. Yeah, I agree. All right. Clearview. What do you, <laughs> Clearview really took it uh, hard from the Australians, speaking of Australia, for breaching privacy law by collecting a bunch of Australian photos for fa facial recognition. It was basically a kind of GDPR type, you didn't get consent from these people uh, decision, right? Yeah, and and it you know it, it found that the consent they provided to whoever they posted the pictures through, whether it's a social media company or other other mechanism, didn't they, the process of consenting with those outfits didn't involve consent to Clearview AI to scrape that from the internet and use it for facial recognition purposes, and that as a result violated Australia's privacy laws. You know, to me, one of the interesting things to think about here in the common thread with the NSO story at the beginning is, you know, you have these, you know, types of technology, whether it's, it's facial recognition or these hacking tools to, to get around um, barriers to legitimate law enforcement operations in some instances that have legitimate uses. And, you know, the challenge that I think both of those technologies have had, maybe the biggest challenge is the practices that some of their biggest proponents have been engaging in. You know, Clearview AI's partnerships with authoritarian regimes, some of the the clumsy ways they've collected this information and put this together have sort of de helped, I think, delegitimize not just their efforts, but the technology of facial recognition more broadly. And if these companies had been acting more responsibly and more ethically, it might be easier for their allies to defend these but practices. Don't you, think, don't you think the ethical actors all got scared out of this five years ago? Nobody's doing it but Clear, Clearview AI. I mean, Facebook has announced they're, they're dumping their facial recognition database because they lost a $650 million judgment or settlement, I guess, under Illinois' law. And if there were more states that had those laws, they would have lost more judgments. So they recognize that they're going to have a real liability problem if they keep this up. Clearview yeah. AI, they were kind of cowboys, but everybody let the cowboys go because only the cowboys were competing for, and willing to, to go out and scrape the data. Yeah, I think that's true to a degree. And I think I actually think the scraping is probably a, a secondary concern. I think it's some of the, the work they've done with questionable regimes around the world that, that put the bigger target on their back. Mm. And I think that's some of what drove people out of these industries. And so, you know, I think some of that was clear at the beginning. You know, people were assuming that it wasn't just these, these two companies, that it was everybody who was engaged in this kind of behavior was acting similarly. And and they you know played a role in tarnishing this for forever. And that's not to say there aren't other legitimate concerns, even in you know law-abiding you know rule of law and human rights-abiding countries around the world with these types of technology. But but it's a lot e uh, harder to defend when you're doing some of the things that NSO and Clearview have been doing. 
Okay, so I planned to to see if I couldn't provoke you uh, with this story. The uh, something that calls itself the the Center for Countering Digital Hate has decided that climate denial uh, is apparently hate speech because hate speech is really just anything that the left doesn't like uh, to have said. And when they You're defined, provoking me. I'm going to. And they did a study to say, well, where is this form of digital hate on the internet? How is it getting around on Facebook? And they said that Breitbart was the source of the most climate change denial interactions. And then I went, to, you know, I always like to see what these people mean by climate change denial, because they clearly want this stuff banned. And basically, they said, anything that quote, undermines, unquote, the need for quote, urgent action, unquote, on climate change is denial. And, you know, that's somebody who says, I don't think that this is our top priority. I don't think that the regulatory regimes that are being proposed are rational in light of the risk. I think we would be better off trying something like dumping iron filings in the Antarctic. All of that is undermining the need for urgent action on climate change and therefore should be banned, according to these guys. Uh, justify that, or do you think that that's going too far? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I honestly didn't see them saying it should be banned. I think they, what I saw them doing it's is saying that hate. Facebook and it's others should hate. be... Oh my God! <laughs> well, I, okay. I didn't even really see them applying that label. And I think, you know, it, it's easy right. to, you know, take their, their the name of their organization and, and apply that logic uh, that they applied to digital hate speech to this. But, you know, I I do think that it this this report, you know, hopefully will help people focus on a, a few things, and and some of them actually think you know on some level you might agree with, though not in in their entirety, of course. The first is that you know, with all the criticism of social media, and some of that is is well placed. It's easy to overlook that the root of this problem is the people generating the underlying content, which often isn't the social media platforms. There. Are, they're a mechanism for amplification and distribution, and that that is of concern. And and I do, as you know, feel like companies should do a better job of of managing this content. But it's important to remember that you know, despite the large volume that this report talks about, there are a lot of people that skip right by the social media and go right to these websites and are are you know digesting this stuff in large volumes. The second point I would I would make and that this report makes is that these the conservative outfits responsible for generating this content are incredibly effective propaganda machines and and it's important not to forget that and and where I where I think you know this come where I sort of net out on this stuff is that again social media is a is an important place for us to focus some of our energy and in combating this misinformation and manipulation of people, which is ultimately what they're doing. But I sort of view that, you know, addressing this at the level of social social media is, is necessary, but it's not going to be sufficient. That, you know, some of these groups have to figure out how to do a better job of, of combating this type of misinformation. And it's not just going to be taking it off the internet. That's, that's unlikely to ever happen. And so I think we've got to come up with better ways to counter this stuff. And that's part of, at least part of where some of these groups are, seem to be failing in my eye. Okay, so uh, 
we're going to try to burn through these. Jamil, State Department is going to have a new cyber bureau. It had one. It lost it. It got it. It tried to get it back at the end of the Trump administration. And now they finally got one. Good, good thing or just a shrug? Well, look, I mean, I think uh, to your point, I mean, this this is this has been a conversation that's been around for a while. The people on the Hill tried to establish one and make it Senate confirmed in the prior administration. The There had been a prior envoy in the form of Chris Painter in the Obama administration. So uh, this has gone back and forth. I think at net net, having a, uh, a person in charge of cyber in the State Department makes a lot of sense. I think that having it be an ambassador level person is not a terrible idea. Uh, they have appointed to create this new position of a special envoy for critical emerging technology. I think that's a really important Thing, an important area for our government to focus on, and the State Department has a role in that, certainly. You know, TBD on whether you need yet another box on the chart reporting to Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary, the um the, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has made clear uh, that it's a priority for him and that he wants this person reporting to to, to the DEPSEC. So, you know, look, the Biden administration has made cybersecurity a priority. They've appointed a deputy national security advisor, a new cyber, a new national cyber director in the White House uh, as a result of legislation and the Cyber Cyberspace Learning Commission's report. They've got great leadership at, at DHS, CISA, with Jen Easterly, Chris Inglis, that national cyber director role, and Newberger at the White House. You know, General Paul Nakasone at NSA. I mean, it, it's a you know, it's a who's who. Rob Joyce at NSA Cybersecurity yeah. Director. It's a who's who of cyber superstars. So it'll be interesting to see who they appoint to this ambassadorial role and to this new special envoy role. But again, it's all great and fine to appoint senior people um, and to create new offices. The point is you got to do something with it. And that, I think, is where the record needs to get a little stronger, right? The president's talked a lot about being tough with Vladimir Putin. He said some things to, to Putin about taking those 16 critical infrastructure areas off the table. The attacks from Russia and, and sort of allowed by Russia to happen from their criminal infrastructure have not stopped. The Chinese continue to hack us aggressively. We need to get tough, which means, which is to say, we need to get more offensive against our adversaries. We need to deter them, and we got to do a better job working with the pri- with private industry and creating that collective defense capability across industry and government. There's a lot of good talk. Jenny's really setting up this new JCDC. That's great. They need to be freed up. We now know that the administration, or at least we've heard rumors, the administration has reimposed something that Rube Goldberg machine of approvals for NSA to do anything and CyberCan to do anything in the space. That's a bad idea. We are finally starting to get a little more aggressive with our adversaries. So hopefully they can free up their people, their, the great people they put in place to do more good work. And, and instead of creating more regulations and more law, allow industry and government to collaborate better together to really solve some of these problems. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. It's sort of, is, is it a good idea? We'll see. It could just mean more people around the table saying, well, hey, you haven't heard from me yet. Or it could mean that there'll be a really serious and well pushed to get international cooperation on ransomware and cryptocurrency. Yeah. Okay, so two things. Uh, one of our regulars is Paul Rosenzweig. He and several others who've been named and, and sometimes participated in the podcast came out with a a pretty good strategic report on Chinese technology platforms and what the U.S. approach ought to be, basically saying, you know, TikTok is a a problem of a sort, and we, but we ought to have a much bigger framework for thinking about things like TikTok and WeChat and the like. So a report worth reading. And then... uh, I guess it's called uh, the Joint Report of the National Security Technology and Law Working Group of the Hoover Institute. And then CISA put out, I love, I always like binding operational directives from CISA. I think they have used them pretty creatively to expand authority that they might otherwise have, basically saying, here's a list of all the vulnerabilities that are being exploited right now. And you agencies are going to have to patch 
the available patches in the next two weeks for anything that uh, was discovered in the last year. And uh, again, I think wisely and creatively, Jen Easterly said, and you know, if you're in critical infrastructure, I'm not saying this is binding on you, but it sure would be stupid not to do it. And so there's a, a deliberate setting of a standard that will show up in the litigation and regulatory inquiries in the future. Uh, there's hundreds of vulnerabilities that are going to get patched because of this. Most of them would have been patched anyway, but this is a, a nice effort to bring all of the federal government and a big chunk of critical infrastructure together at the same time. So that's all for this week. I want to thank Scott. Scott, you did a great job. Uh, it's fun to have a philosophical approach to these issues. Jamil, always great to have you. And Nate, you you rose to the occasion, thoroughly provoked as always. <laughs> uh, it was great. Uh, uh, and Happy to uh, uh, Anybody in the audience who's been triggered, send uh, your mail to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. I, I always read those. Or even better, express your outrage or enthusiasm enthusiasm in a review because I certainly read those. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music and tell you this has been episode 382 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.